I want to talk a little bit today about thankfulness from the scriptures um, in, um, in this story, this wonderful story in Luke 17. I read this week that by one estimate, those in the very bottom 10% of income in, in the United States are in the top 30% of income in the world as a whole. Think about that for a minute. When we get concerned about uh, distribution of wealth and all those kinds of things, those in the bottom 10% in the U.S. are in the top 30% in the world uh, in terms of income. Uh, author Steve Maraboli observes this. He says, The more I understand the mind and the human experience, the more I begin to suspect there is no such thing as unhappiness. There is only ungratefulness. Isn't it? That just cuts me to the heart. And I think he's right. There's no such thing as unhappiness, he says. There's only ungratefulness. Well, you and I know that in the Old Testament, part of uh, kind of woven through the fabric of Old Testament life um, was this regular celebration of thanksgiving and joy and praise. They were key elements of their worship. And yet, even though we read that, the Bible depicts all kinds of ungrateful people. Uh, it, we don't have to look very far. You don't, if you start in the book of Genesis, you don't have to read very far to recognize by the time the book of Exodus, um, the, the whole nation who could have gotten to the promised land in just a few days uh, were waylaid for 40 years because they complained the whole way. Um, it's just kind of very, very interesting. So today, we're going to spend a little time talking about uh, 10 men, all of whom should be grateful. Now, let's talk a little bit about their particular malady, and then we'll get into it. Um, these 10 men had leprosy. We don't completely know what leprosy probably was like in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, because lots of skin diseases were tagged as leprosy then. Leprosy today is known as Hansen's disease. It's still a, a disease that is present in parts of the world. Uh, but interestingly, it's nearly wiped out. Relatively few people today are afflicted with this really loathsome, legendary ailment. Um, there are perhaps no more than 300 new cases of Hansen's disease uh, annually in the U.S., but it was certainly well known in the ancient world. Traditionally, those who were afflicted had been forced to live under quarantine conditions. Even in the modern day, I had a former student who uh, was from Mississippi. She was going home for the summer and wanted me to help her. She had done some pastoral care training with us and wanted me to help her get into She wanted to go. There was a leper colony near her hometown, actually about an hour away from her hometown in Mississippi, and she just wanted to go visit the people there. She'd read some of this stuff and said, I just want to go kind of call on them. And I had to kind of work with, I talked to the staff because they, they didn't trust us to know what we were doing. I said, this, this girl's made a couple hundred pastoral visits. She knows what she's doing. But isn't it interesting that there's still those kind of places, some places in, in the country even. Now, as we read about leprosy in the, in, in the, the Bible, certainly in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus in chapter 13 and chapter 14, I read back through this week, um, uh, that leper, the leper was to be seen as unclean, often permanently. Those who were afflicted in that way had to warn others with cries of unclean. Unclean, you agreed about that in 1345 in the, in the book of Exodus, uh, uh, Leviticus. We'll look at there a little bit. And they were required to live 
apart. The word I want to use here is they were required to live outside. Outside of the family. Outside of the family of faith. Really, in many ways, outside of society. But Jesus understood that. He empathized with that. And he uh, dealt with it in the right way. Now, um, the, the verse I just referenced here when I said Jesus understands being outside of things, on the outside looking in, is I remember the couple of verses that helped begin the Gospel of John, the, the story of Jesus, when it says, He came into His own, and His own received Him not. Okay, now let's look at this story about ten disenfranchised men who had literally no hope to be anything else. Bob, if you're back there and don't mind, would you start in Luke 17 and read 11 down through 14? Okay, now, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. This is toward the end of his public ministry. In fact, uh, verse 11 is the key. Look down at verse 11 real quick. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So the idea here is he's going to Jerusalem for the last time. What will happen the last time he goes to Jerusalem? He's going to die there. Okay, so really that all begins to happen by chapter 19 or so. Uh, the, uh, uh, the triumphal entry, all that, that last week of Jesus' public life um, uh, takes place right there. So um, he's headed from the north, from Galilee, kind of where he grew up and where a lot of his public ministry took place, okay, uh, around the Sea of Galilee, you know. Uh, Nazareth was up there. Nain was up there in the, in the towns of Capernaum and Galilee, all those places where you read a lot about Jesus, a lot of ministry. He's headed south to Jerusalem. But if you look at a Bible map, you might even want to turn to one in your Bibles, kind of in the back. If you look at a Bible map of New Testament times, of times near Jesus, it's going to show he's going from Galilee, which is in the far north of Israel. It's going to show that he's going, uh, according to verse 11 here, He's passing between Samaria and Galilee. So literally, if you look here, you got the Sea of Galilee and the, and the, the district of Galilee up north. The Jordan River flows south. Jerusalem is kind of at the end of it, down in the south. Samaria lies between the two. And so he's headed from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he goes through Samaria. Now, if you look at a Bible map, uh, what, what you would learn, it's kind of interesting for me to follow a little bit. This is how desperate the days were or how disenfranchised a certain group of people were. Most good Jews would go east through Perea. So they'd go across the Jordan River. From, if they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem, they'd go across the river east through Perea. Uh, from Galilee down to Judah, they'd cross the river and come back. That basically, they would rather go across the Jordan River twice 
than to go through Samaria once. Does that tell you anything about how hated and how disenfranchised these people were? They'd rather literally cross the river, go south, cross the river again, than to just go straight through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans that much. That gives us some background, doesn't it? A little bit here. Um, but not Jesus. Why? He had friends in Samaria. He had lots of friends in Samaria. In fact, if you read John 4, the woman at the well, remember she was a Samaritan woman and not a very nice lady at one time in her life. Remember? But after she met Jesus, things were completely different. And, and she goes back to her town, a Samaritan village, and leads the entire town to faith in Christ. Jesus had lots of friends in Samaria. It didn't bother him at all to travel straight north to straight south. And so that's what we find him doing here. On his way, here's, I'll, I'll take us back to our outline now. On his way to Jerusalem for the last time, it seems that Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria. And I love that about him. Now, on his way there, he meets some, um, some men who shout at him uh, from probably 100 yards or so away. They have to keep what I would call a legal distance. John, would you mind to go over to Leviticus and read 1346? It's going to tell us that in the law, if you've been inspected by a priest and it be determined that you have some version or some degree of leprosy, they were so fearful of it that they would isolate you in a leper colony and you weren't allowed to have any outside contact with other people. Family might bring you food, but they would leave it and then back up. 1346 in Leviticus. John, you got it? Actually, read 45 and 46 now, um, so they've got to keep a legal, literally it's prescribed in the law, a legal distance from the rest of society. Now, just scan verse 13 again. As Jesus approaches this leper colony, out, it wouldn't be within a village, it'd be outside a village. They'd have kind of a village of their own. As, they, as he approaches them, they shout because the law required them to shout, unclean, unclean. But they didn't just say that. They kind of shouted what I would call a rehearsed message. Uh, the, I think the message was rehearsed here. Um, now, there is, um, uh, there's a sense here that Jesus and his entourage approach this colony of outsiders and they have recognized in some way, they know he's coming. His reputation has preceded him. And so they cried out. They had to. But this cry was a cry for mercy to the only one alive on the planet at the time who could really change their destiny. Think about that for just a minute. 
There was only one. I don't know how many people were alive on the planet in uh, 2,000 years ago. I don't, I don't know. That would have been a good thing to look up, I guess. But there was one alive on the planet for 33 years who could do something about their plight. And so they began to cry out, not only unclean, unclean, but Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy. I, I, I just love this thought here that they rehearsed. Okay, when he comes, what are we going to say? Look over at 18. Just turn the page, uh, if you're like mine, one, one page over. Somebody read 18, 39, 38, and 39. It's, another, it's a blind man here who also cries out. See what he shouts. There are three words that I want us to drill down on just a minute. It's the words, Lord, have mercy. By the way, these uh, words, not only spoken here and kind of rehearsed by these ten leprous men uh, and shouted by the blind man, chapter 18, and others, these three words have been spoken and sung in uh, Christian liturgy for centuries. Lord, have mercy. If any of you have any uh, Roman Catholic background, you'll remember, uh, probably, at least at some point, the, the words, Lord, have mercy, have been said in English, or they might have been said in another language, Kyrie eleison. Heard that? Heard, if you've ever sung, Miriam, a mass, you've sung a Kyrie. Uh, maybe even outside the Roman mass, uh, we've sung pieces that included Kyrie. Uh, believe it or not, there was a rock band in the 80s who sang Kyrie Eleison um, uh, on the radio. It was, it was like a, a chart topper called Kyrie Eleison. And most people probably didn't even know what they were saying. Uh, uh, name of that group? Mr. Mister? They did that? Yeah, I think so. Those words, Lord have mercy, Kyrie eleison, the place they, they occupy in Christian um, history and liturgy is really interesting because Kyrie eleison is not Latin. That's the typical language of the Roman church. They're not in Latin. Literally, those, those words, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, so Christ have mercy, are maintained in the Roman liturgy in Greek, in the original Greek. The only part of the Roman uh, service that continues to be said in Greek because it's the old, they're some of the oldest words prayed. Isn't that interesting? Christe eleison. Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy. That's the same chant that these ten diseased men shout to our Lord as he gets just close enough. You know, you've got, got to catch the picture. They're, they're kind of nudging one another and saying, I think he can hear us now. And in between their cries of unclean, unclean, Lord have mercy. Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy on us. It's a cry of desperation. It's a cry for help. Now their faith in verse 14, their faith, 
accompanied by obedience, that's the word that needs to go in the blank, leads to their healing. And, and I put some references here because there, there are things that, that kind of need to take place. Um, uh, look, at, look at five. Go back to five. So turn left just a few pages. Somebody read 12, 13, and 14 out of five. There's another story of a leper being healed. Now, he was healed instantly. It's a little bit different story, but, but I want you to see what followed there. Five, twelve through fourteen. Now, notice here, Jesus gives them the same instruction that he gives the man in chapter 5. Go see a priest. Now, this is all prescribed in Leviticus. Uh, if you think you've been healed, if you get better, and by the way, you're not going to get better, okay? But if, if you're healed from this, if God touches you, then go to a priest. He'll have to inspect you. There'll have to be, uh, so, there'll have to be some... Um, um, uh, sacrifices that take place and all that. So what you've got to see here is that Jesus gives them something to do. Go see the priest. So he reaches out to them and he tells them to go see the priest. Show yourself to the priest. There's no need, by the way, it's not a kind of deal where they've got to walk to Jerusalem to show themselves to a priest. Just find a priest who can certify your healing. So they do that. And as they went, new life. You've got to imagine this. The lesions, maybe even missing digits. And you've got to imagine as they left to go, regeneration. New life. It, the most incredible thing that's ever happened to them. By the way, it's, I find it intriguing here that only Luke records this miracle out of the four. There are other leprosy healings like we read uh, that are recorded. But I find this really interesting that only Luke records this. And I think it's the doctor thing. And I think one of the things that may be going through his head is, I would have to file 10 insurance claims on one healing on this deal. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, so they're in a hurry. Why are they in a hurry? After verse 14. I want to find a priest. I want to get certified. I want to, I want to give the appropriate sacrifices, which that's kind of an interesting deal too. And I want to go home. They're in a hurry. I think of the story that, that I've told often. Probably told it to you, so, so forgive me. But about the guy who was late for an appointment and he's looking for a parking space and can't find one. That kind of happened to me almost yesterday. We had graduation up here. Uh, and this place was crawling with people. But um, I, I'm kind of running late, looking for a parking spot. Uh, Rhonda, you've never had that happen, I'm sure. But um, uh, I'm looking for a parking spot. And the guy prays out loud in his car, Lord, if you will help me find a parking place close to this building, I will start going to church and I will give up beer. 
Yeah, he's desperate, right? About that time, I mean, he's he's rolling up to the to the the upfront, uh, close up parking spaces. Miraculously, it's like oh, there's a there's an open parking space, and he pulls in and says, Are "You ready? Never mind, I found one." He's in a hurry. These 10 men were in a hurry. They want to go home and they had stuff to do so they could go home. <laughs> They're going to be obedient and that as they go, it leads to their healing. But we got to read the rest of the story. We got to read about the 10th man in this story. Uh, Bob, can you go to 15 and read down through 19? Okay, now what is, there's one of them who is different from the other nine. And, and we've got to dial in to, they're all in a hurry. But let's be honest, they're all in a hurry. Uh, the greatest things ever happened in their lives has happened, and they can't wait to tell somebody about it, and they frankly can't wait to show themselves to the priest to do their appropriate sacrifice and get home. I can't wait to see the expression on my wife and children's face when I walk through the door clean. But the one man that's talked about in verse 15 uh, does something unique to the ten. And we've got to kind of learn from that. Uh, what is he doing as he returns? He literally, he's headed to see the priest. Wait a minute. And he turns, he does a 180 and heads back to Jesus. What is he doing? Now remember, he's been shouting as this entourage approaches the village, the leper colony, he's been shouting so that they can hear him what the, what the um, law requires. What's he been shouting? Unclean, unclean. Notice that his shouts by verse 15 have changed. What's he shouting now? It says, in a loud voice, he did what? He's praising God. You got to catch this. His shout of unclean went from that to Kyrie eleison. But probably in Aramaic. From that, it went to, oh God, you are so good. He uh, probably is quoting a psalm, making up his own words, whatever he's doing, and he's shouting him at a loud voice, at the top of his voice. So that everybody can hear him. I was unclean and I'm not anymore. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Bob? No. That's a good question. And what you've got to understand here, and I think it's the important distinction. They were all healed. Now, now we're going to see this in just a couple of verses here. When Jesus asked what I believe is a very haunting question here in, in verse 19. When he says, we're not, we're not ten cleansed? So I think that's our answer. Uh, it's a rhetorical question there uh, in verse 18 and 19. Now, um, so 
His cry of unclean is replaced by a shout of praise. And he gets, when he gets back into Jesus, uh, in, in front of Jesus, what does he do in verse 16? Wow. And it's not just, he doesn't just bow like this. He's on his face at Jesus' feet. Now, by the way, the New Testament word for, that's often translated worship, uh, it's, it's the one that's used in Romans 12, for instance, in verse 2. The New Testament word that's translated worship literally means to prostrate yourself. Now, guys, I didn't say prostate. That's a different thing. On your face, on the ground. An appropriate, an appropriate uh, uh, posture, by the way. That's the word that goes there. His posture is correct. In Revelation 19, there's this wonderful uh, story about John. I've been reading through the book of Revelation in my devotion time. There's this wonderful story about John. He's had all this vision and comes toward the end of it. And an angel's been leading him around and talking to him. And it, it, as all this stuff happens, uh, John gets on his face. He prostrates himself in front of the angel. And the angel says, grabs his hand and says, get up. You don't worship me, you worship God. The appropriate posture in the Bible for worship is to be at on your face at Jesus' feet. And so he did here. Now, he stops. He turns around. Only one worshiped the one who healed him. By the way, I know I'm using a lot of word study today, sorry, but the word that Luke uses to describe the former leper's act of gratitude while he's on his face. Now, look, look at the, the passage here. Um, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. Verse 16, he fell on his face, giving thanks to him. That phrase, giving thanks, is the Greek word eucharistia. If you've been a part of a, a more liturgical environment than we have around here, maybe, maybe the, the church where you... Um, where you um, attended on Sunday, they would every Sunday or occasionally celebrate the Eucharist. What is that? Holy Communion. Yeah. It's the, literally, the word Eucharistia means to give thanks. And that's the word that Luke chooses here that later on becomes kind of a, 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 the idea of um, who we're to be or how we're to be before it's a combination before Christ. It's a combination of the Greek words for good and grace. It means the good response by that which is undeserving. It's thanks for un the undeserved in my life. It's a discipline, and it's one I have to develop. I really believe we are not naturally thankful. I don't think we're naturally grateful. I think we've got to develop it. Notice, in this story, only 10% of the people that were graced said thanks for it. One in ten. Okay. Now, look at verse 17. Jesus asked, where are the other nine? Does he need information? Put the word information in your blank. Jesus is not looking for information. This should be a haunting question to us. And so he takes that moment as kind of a teaching moment here. 
in posing the questions he asked, were not all ten cleansed? There's our answer, Bob. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? In posing the questions here, Jesus um, kind of takes a teaching opportunity. The questions are almost like a mathematical story problem. If 10 started out and only one, you know, that kind of thing, right? If 10 individuals are healed from leprosy, what would give, how many should give thanks and praise to God? 10 out of 10, right? Has God's miraculous power failed and the nine are still unclean? Bob, the answer is implied no. They've all been cleansed. Everyone present knows that all 10 have been cleansed and the nine have neglected to turn and give thanks. That's a place I just don't want to be. By the way, in verse, uh, uh, the twist in the story that I neglected to comment on is just the fact that it's interesting that Luke just drops a fact in that this guy's a Samaritan. That would, by the way, to those who are, uh, those who are standing around and say, oh man, you know, uh, it would be, we watched the Peanuts movie with the girls uh, last weekend, it would be, arg, is what they would uh, react, yeah. Uh, it's a Samaritan. Come on, don't say that. They were like uh, the cousins that you didn't want anybody to know you were kin to, you know. I don't have any of those in my life, so don't report that to anybody if you know any of my cousins. Verse 19, let's finish it out. The man is healed by his faith. Now, I've got to comment that on that just a little bit here. Because uh, often we'll talk about a certain person is a faith healer or, you know, you watch on TV, sometimes on religious TV. This is a faith healer. Or, uh, boy, there's a person of tremendous faith and faith healed them. Uh, Got to be really, really careful with the distinction here. So I want to say three things about what healed him. Notice in verse 19, let's read it again because it's going to give us kind of the detail here. And he said to him, and Jesus said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's make sure we understand that. The man is healed by his faith, not that he has had the power in himself all along. You know, you could have done this a long time ago. You just need to think better. By the way, you can find that book on any shelf in Barnes & Noble. Just think better. You can think yourself to a better life. You can educate yourself to a better life. It's not that he's always had the power within himself to do this. Why didn't you do it a long time ago? Okay. You and I have had this talk before. It's not that. That's way too new agey, right? You know, think yourself to your best life. That's very popular modern kind of pseudo-theology. So it's not that. And secondly, the faith itself has not accomplished the healing. In other words, remember he says, your faith has made you well. We've got to be really careful there. Jesus is not saying, your faith is so great that you're better. It's your faith that healed you. No, that's just not true. It's not your faith. It's not the faith within you that's healed you. Faith itself is a gift. Read about it in the list of gifts, right? It's not your faith that's made you better. By the way, that would also imply that if I'm not better, then I don't have enough faith. And I've heard that sermon a lot. Didn't like it the first 16 times I heard it. 
Okay. Only 16? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, 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 I should exaggerate more, shouldn't I? Okay. You, you don't have enough faith. We've heard, how many times have we heard this in our life? It's not the faith that heals. It's faith in God that heals. Faith in God the healer. So the third point here would be, his faith in God has made the difference. It's the who of the, of the, of the um, object of the faith that makes it effective. It's not that, that Doyle is better because he has such great faith. It's who Doyle's faith is in. In the God who can alone heal. Now, I want to do one more little word play here. Because when Jesus says, the words are in red in my Bible. When Jesus says, in verse 19, your faith has made you well. If your Bible's like mine, there is near, has made you well, there's a footnote there. Is, it, is that in your Bible? What does it say at the bottom of the page? Saved. Saved. What? Literally. Yeah, okay. That, that, I think that's what that means. Um, the word say, the, your faith has made you well, okay, is the word in Greek, sozo. It's the same word that is used in John 3.17 as the word saved. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be sozo. Isn't it interesting here, I think, that the idea that our faith here can not only save, but heal us. Janie, it's what you and I have always talked about, saving faith. It's also healing faith. It's the same word, the same concept. Uh, Jesus doesn't see any distinction here. He literally, this could have been translated, and that's why it's put literally down at the bottom of the page. He could have literally said here, he, he may have said, your faith has saved you. And we know there's no other way to salvation except through faith. Now, a couple of questions. First, apply before we go. You ready? Have you been graced? Would you, would, would you argue with me that the ten in our story have all been graced? They didn't deserve it. Uh, 30 minutes before, their lives were miserable and literally Quite literally hopeless. And now they've got a brand new lease on life. They're rushing to the priest uh, so that they can get home. Their life is going to start again. They've been graced. All ten. All ten. Here's my question. Have you been graced? Second, have you acknowledged it? Have you acknowledged it? Have you said to God, thank you, Lord, for healing me. Thank you for saving me. Do you say it to him every day? Do you tell him you love him every day? Maybe back to kind of the purpose of this whole day, really. Um, 
I wish I had one more opportunity to tell mom how grateful I am for the many ways and the many days she graced me in my life. If you've got an opportunity today, that might be a good thing to do. My guess is that your life has been graced by a woman who didn't have to, but she took care of you. You and I know this society is full of those stories of those who don't take care of their children. But we were all graced. We ought to be grateful for it. And I ought to say, not just thanks to mom, but say thanks to the God who gave me that mom. You know the story, many of you know um, my mom's story. She would tell me often um, at a time when uh, she was getting on to me about something. She'd say something like, I never had a mom. Her mom died when she was four. I never had a mom. But if I did, I treated her better than you're treating me, you know. <laughs> I, she was never above a little bit of, uh, you know, blackmail. God bless you. Moms, happy Mother's Day. Have a great day. If somebody has graced you, thank them for it, will you?